Uh, do you like merry-go-rounds? Do you like carousels? I'm going to be using most of the time those words interchangeably today. Do you find them to be magical? Do you find them to be romantic? Do you find them to be fun and enjoyable and celebratory and beautiful? Do you find merry-go-rounds to be merry? <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good shaking of the head, Eleanor. I like that. Or do you find them instead to be dizzying, to be loud, uh, to be garish, to be somewhat annoying and somewhat anticlimactic? They look really good, but at the end of the day, you're just going around in a circle and not getting anywhere. Maybe it's some combination of those things when you think about a merry-go-round. But with our text today, we are stepping onto a not-so-merry-go-round. And I'm going to press this illustration right up to its breaking point today. It may break but I'm going to press it all the way through. So here's what we're going to consider as we look at this section of, script, uh, of Scripture. What's on the merry-go-round? You know, merry-go-rounds have themes, right? You might have a Western theme, or you might have a, a royal court theme, or a zoo, or uh, a, uh, a safari, or something like that. What's on the merry-go-round? Then the second section is going to be, round we go. And the third section is going to be, can somebody make this stop? Is there a way to get off of this merry-go-round. So let's begin by looking at what is on our not-so-merry-go-round. This section of Judges provides us with four primary elements, four primary categories by which the entirety of the book can be understood. The things that I'm about to say are categories that will exist for the entire book, and if you're familiar with judges at all, you are familiar with the things that I am about to say. You may know them uh, by various names and various ways to categorize them. But that's, this is what I want to do as we start. We're going we're gonna to look at this merry-go-round. We're going to have an entryway into this merry-go-round in four sections that are part of our not-so-merry-go-round. So the first section, when we get on this merry-go-round, the section that we're invited to join is not so pleasant. It is seen clearly in our text this week. It was seen clearly uh, in what we looked at last week. The first section of our merry, not so merry-go-round, I'm not going to say that every time, I'm just going to say merry-go-round. The first section is apostasy or the abandonment of God, sin, uh, generational decay, generational gap. Uh, one author calls it generation degeneration. If that helps you to think of it that way. Cultural capitulation. I don't want to belabor this section of our uh, merry-go-round because this is what we talked about last week so much. But there are two good summaries of it, I think. Uh, verse 17, yet they did not listen to their judges for they whored after the other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord and they did not do so. So our first section articulates and explains to us this sin, and then the very last verse is the summary of this, and this is kind of language and illustrations that I used last week. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their God. They summarize that section well. And in addition to seeing 
each one of these sections from the perspective of what was happening to the Israelites. So you can see each one of these sections from man's perspective. You can also see it from God's perspective as well. And so from the Israelite perspective, section one is abandonment of the Lord and not obeying the Lord. From God's perspective, God's reaction to that is anger. We see the wrath of God stirred up, and we saw that last week. You see it in our section this week, verse 20. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel because they had transgressed the covenant. They had not obeyed what God told them to obey. Section two, moving around uh, this uh, merry-go-round, is the, verse 18 describes it, the oppression and the affliction which is brought on the people by the enemies who are now around them, by the Canaanites who were not driven out. And in this section, we have kind of a summary list of the peoples who were there, the peoples who were not driven out, neither by Joshua uh, nor by those who should have driven them out, the generations after Joshua. And the point here is to say that the presence of uh, these surrounding nations and their antagonism towards Israel is not just bad luck. It's not just bad karma that exists in their lives. Instead, what is being shown clearly here is that these nations are instruments in the hands of God. They're not acting randomly. They are acting under the sovereign hand of God to accomplish his purpose and his purpose, and that's where we can get now God's perspective on this, the oppression and the, the affliction of this. The purpose that he has is to judge and to punish his people and their rebellion against him. And I say to, to punish his people, to judge his people, that in fact is hanging in the balance, whether or not they are in fact his people. If you look down to uh, verse 20 that we just looked at, his anger is against them. And he says, because this people have transgressed my covenant. Now, we could look at that as just throwaway language. It's not. When God is speaking of Israel, it is typically my people. So when God begins to refer to Israel as this people, then hanging in the balance is their identity, is their belonging to the Lord, is God's favor towards them. It's not assumed, and it must be considered then throughout the book to what extent they are his people. All right, so we've got apostasy and anger in section one, and then section two is the oppression uh, and the judgment that is being rendered by God. Section three, as we work our way around here, as we look at this merry-go-round, is seen in verses 15 and 18. There are two words there that help to understand the next part of the merry-go-round, and those words are uh, the people were in distress where we left them last week, and they were groaning. Distress and groaning results from this oppression and this affliction. When the hand of the Lord is pressing us down because of the weight of our sin, we groan. Okay, that's a universal experience for the people of God. 
David explains it beautifully in Psalm 32. For when I kept silent, David says, regarding his sin, when he kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. When God's hand is heavy upon us because of our sin, we groan. Now, in this particular section that I just read for us, this groaning is all that is written about the people of God. We don't hear any statement of they groaned and repented. They just groaned. Now, in other sections, in fact, as we move through chapter 3, we'll see, and they cried out to the Lord, added to that. They groaned and they cried out to the Lord. And so one kind of looks at this, this groaning that is going on in section 3 here, and we ask the question, what kind of groaning is this and what kind of crying out is it? To use for a moment Pauline language from Corinthians, which is helpful, I think, to apply here, remember that Paul describes two kinds of sorrow that can exist in the world, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is sorrow that leads to repentance. It's the kind, it's a productive sorrow because it leads you to take a look at yourself, at what is happening in life, at why you were groaning, at what are you doing, and it produces something good and rich and helpful. It produces repentance. Worldly sorrow is just sorrow that leads to death. It doesn't produce change. It doesn't produce reflection. It doesn't produce turning to God for help. And, and so we kind of look at judges and we, and we wonder, and, and it's appropriate for us to wonder, what kind of sorrow is being expressed here? What kind of crying is being expressed by the people uh, during this time frame? And frankly, it's tough to say. It's really tough to say. We're going to have to leave it a little bit as an open-ended question. We're going to see God respond to it but we almost don't have enough information provided for us to determine how genuine is it. And we certainly can see that it's not long-lasting. It doesn't, it, without a question, we can see that it doesn't endure for long. So it might bring it into question. The reality is that everybody groans and everybody cries. Is it repentance or not? That's, that's going to be tough for us to understand. But... In this same section, we can, in fact, see God's reaction to this. We can see God making a response to it. And in the section that we've got today, no repentance is expressed at all. And yet we see a response from God. And the response from God is described in verse 18 as the word pity. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. You know how the sound of your child crying moves you. This is not to denigrate anyone else's children, but the sound of your child crying moves you in a way that the sound of somebody else's child crying doesn't. It affects you. Hey, that's, all, that's all right. You don't have to feel bad about that. That's, God's wired you that way. So God is moved to pity when he hears this groaning taking place. 
Now, we've got a gut reaction in our day and age to the word pity. I don't want your pity. Right? That's, that's what we think of. Don't, I don't want your pity. I don't need your pity. Well, we do need God's pity. <laughs> we do. We need God's pity. We need that which flows from that God's pity. We need his compassion. We need his mercy to be turned toward us. Pity is that part of God's character which provides the impetus within God to turn and act with mercy when he hears groaning. And the, the word itself, to pity, has that embedded in the word, this idea of God is going to relent. God is going to turn back the calamity, the plunderers, the enemies that he himself has sent. Which leads us then to our fourth section of this. So again, working our way around this merry ground, we're now to our last section, which is deliverance by a judge. A judge is raised up by God to give the people some measure of relief for them. Now, judge is a perfectly acceptable translation for this word uh, as it's used in Hebrew, but it has a little bit of a wider idea attached to it uh, than what we think of as judge. So immediately when, uh, when we hear the word judge, an image pops into our mind of a sterile courtroom scene and things very pristine and very orderly and someone in a black robe sitting up on a chair speaking with authority and holding a gavel. If that is in your mind when you think of judge, then it would be better that this book was called something else for you. You need to set that aside, okay, because that's not the idea that we have here in Judges. Maybe uh, Samuel, who's not even in the book, but who is a judge, maybe he dispenses wisdom, and maybe some of the other judges in ways that we don't know or understand dispense wisdom and interpret law as well. And unless you can substitute in your mind ox goad for gavel, because these judges tend to bash people rather than knock on a, on a a bit of wood, then we're going to have a little trouble with the way that word is used. These judges are leaders. They are rulers. They are temporary leaders, temporary rulers, non-dynastic rulers who exist in Israel. They are deliverers of the people. And if you look at what, what do they do? What, you, what, what do you do as a judge? Well, the answer is they save people. So, verse 16, the very first verse of our passage, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them. That's what a judge does in Israel. This, at least that's what a judge does in this period. He saves, or even she saves. And if you ask this question, what do we call a person who saves? Well, we call the noun form of a person who saves is a savior. So what God is doing, and this is actually the word that is used, if you look over in chapter 3, we'll do that next week, God raised up saviors who saved them. Now, because that's a loaded term, sometimes our Bibles say deliverers. God raised up deliverers who saved them. But really what God did is he raised up saviors who saved them. So those, those are the four sections of the carousel, okay? Apostasy and anger, oppression and judgment, groaning and pity, 
as the third one, and then deliverance by a judge whom God has raised up. That is the fourth section. Now, get your hands inside, spin this thing around, and off we go, or round we grow. We go. Judges is a distressingly dizzying ride. Now, when you were a child, when you were a child, many of us, I won't say all of us, many of us liked spinning. And so whether it was simply twirling outside or doing cartwheels or being on one of those playground merry-go-rounds uh, that you could spin around on, we liked to spin. I was a little bit different, had this experience, you know, remember the old ride called a spider? kind of moves like this and goes around. My stepbrother lost it on top of me during one of those rides, and that kind of soured me on uh, rides that go around uh, for uh, a little while. There's been lots of spinning if you've been watching the Olympics. There's a lot of going around in circles that happens in the course of the Olympics, a lot of short track going around in circles, a lot of spinning you have to do if you miss a couple of shots in the biathlon. A lot of uh, doubles, triples, quads, 720s, 900s, 1260s. And of course, the front side double cork, 1440 double grab, affectionately known as the front side 1440 bloody Dracula, or for short, the 14 bloody. That was done snowboarding, big air snowboarding. Uh, somebody did that. Lauren and I used to like the zipper. I don't know if you know the zipper. Two wheels, cars that rotated around like this. We would, we would be dead in five seconds on the zipper uh, these days. But we used to like it. Judges is distressingly dizzying. It is not pleasant. These four sections of this not-so-merry-go-round are identified for us. They are set in motion and they never stop. They just don't stop. You look for relief and you go, they just keep going around. And the Lord uses this. He uses the motion. He uses those four things and he says, it's a test. Now, if you were with us for the Gospel of John, we, this is not an unusual thing that God does. Remember in John 6, much of John 6 is set up. Jesus said this to test him. God tests. This is set up by God as a test. Verse 22, in order to test Israel. Chapter 3, verse 1, to test Israel. Verse 4, they were for the testing of Israel. Now, when a teacher gives us a test, obviously part of what the teacher is trying to do is for the teacher's sake to determine what do you know. What are you able to put together? I, as the teacher, need to know, and therefore I'm giving you this test because I need to know. God doesn't need to know. Okay? God is omniscient, as we saw in Deuteronomy when I read that before the section last week. God has forecasted judges. God has said, I know the inclinations of your heart. I know what's going to happen during this time period. God does not need to know. He is not giving a test for himself. 
So why else do teachers give tests? Well, teachers give tests as a way of letting us know what we know and what we don't know and making us, or the recipients of the test, take the time to study, to learn, to get the information inside of us so that it becomes part of us. Now, there are two elements to this test right here, and the two elements are made clear for us. Verse 22, in order to test Israel by them, whether they would, so here's the, the subject matter of the test, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. Do you find it helpful if the teacher tells you what's going to be on the test? Does that make you feel good? Well, here's what's on the test. Will you obey the law of God or not? There you go. Now, do you check it off and say, Phew, now I know what to do, good, okay. I'm all set. I know, I know what the answer to this is going to be. I've got the Ten Commandments memorized. I'll be all set. So that's part of it. Will you walk in the commands of God or not? Second part of the test is embedded there in chapter 3. I trust you heard it as I read it. I'll read verse 2 again. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war. To teach war to those who had not known it before. So, we think of that, we, we, pardon me, we hear that, and we think, okay, well, God wants to prepare each generation to be good at warfare, to know how to use a sword. Therefore, the application is fencing. Okay, everybody should take up fencing because everybody should be good at warfare. God wants to make sure that each generation knows how to make war, how to handle a weapon. Okay, all right, there might be some truth to that. That, that, that might be an application of this. This is not pretend war. Real war is going to take place here. So there's a physical application to it, but it is certainly more than that. What we have to know is the reason for this war. Why are you making war? Why is war a necessity? What is the purpose of war? What are you struggling for? And are you willing to make the sacrifices that are a part of this struggle? And what God wants them to understand is that we are striving after holiness in life, in heart, in worship, as a community before God. That's what Israel is striving for. Israel just doesn't need to know war in order to get rid of Canaanites. The struggle that Israel has is how do I worship the God who is holy, holy, holy? Every generation must know that battle. Not just one generation knowing that battle. Every generation must know how to fight that war. How to fight after and pursue holiness. Well, the natural question that comes up if you've taken a test, you want to know, how'd I do? Right? How'd you do? How'd, I, how'd everybody do on the test? Is there a curve? Please tell me there's a curve on the test. So how did uh, Israel do on the test? Well, in fact, what we have in the book of Judges is the test itself, and we have the teacher's marks, the teacher's comments are embedded in Judges. So, how did Israel do on the test? Well, 
Of course, the answer is F. The answer is Israel got an F. They were supposed to do what was right in the sight of the Lord according to the commandments that God had given to Moses, that God had encouraged through Joshua. And instead, they did what was right in their own eyes. They knew what was on the test going into it, so there is no excuse. There was no surprises on the test. No surprise questions. Do this and you will live. Don't do it and you will die. They got an F. In fact, what Judges teaches us through this spinning, through this going around in circles, is that things go from bad to worse in the book of Judges. I'll give you three ways to think of the spinning of this merry-go-round, since that's the section that we're in. Round we go. You can think of it as getting nowhere, okay, merry-go-round, getting nowhere, and then when you're three, you're pursuing that horse in front of you, your brother in front of you, your sister in front of you, and of course you never get there. Judges is spinning around and getting nowhere. Or you can think of judges as a vortex. It's spinning and things are getting worse and worse and worse, and you're going down to the soup, down to the pit, down to the bottom. Or, if you'd like, you can imagine judges as spinning around and like, a, like one of those playground merry-go-rounds, right, where you can get going faster and faster and faster until somebody flies off of it. You can think of judges that way, spinning away from the center, spinning away from God, spinning away from the law of God. The destructive cycle is made plain. And we ask, or at least I ask myself this question, wait, don't judges make this better? <laughs> you know, if God is providing judges, if God is providing judges, shouldn't, shouldn't it be cycling upwards somehow? Shouldn't it just be a, a little bit better than it was before as a result of the judge that came? Why are we spinning downward? Why are we not you know, going up like that? Can't go straight up, but I can go up like that. Makes it a little bit easier. What did the judges do? Well, verse 19 gives us the answer. It doesn't maybe give us all the reason, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of the practices or their stubborn ways. So here's the irony. Make sense of this one. God, provide judges, God provides judges to save them, and the reality is things get worse. They go from bad to worse. Now, the judges provide momentary deliverance, temporary deliverance. But the corruption increases after each one of them. This is a quote from uh, Daniel Bloch in his commentary. The rulers raised by God represented stop-gap measures in an apparently irresistible, irreversible, and inevitable process of canonization. Instead of effecting fundamental repairs on this deteriorating dike, they plugged the holes with their fingers. As soon as their finger was removed, the water gushed through with increasing force. So the Apostle Paul looks at this, and he looks at 
similar patterns, similar patterns in the Pentateuch, similar patterns in Exodus, similar patterns that come after this in the time of the kings. And he's able to synthesize these stories, these lessons together. Paul's able to universalize the experience of Israel in these various periods. And, and as Paul presents this to the church, he says, we're not just talking about what was going on with Israel in 1250. Instead, the lesson is for humanity. Doesn't matter, Jew, Greek, that makes no difference. The lesson is for humanity. This then, in Paul's words, is what that test says about us. Romans 3.20. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 5.20. Now the law came to increase trespass. Galatians 3. 22 and 23. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin. We were held captive under the law. This is the lesson. Captive under the law. Romans 4.15. The law brings wrath. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming, wrote Paul in the Colossians passage that we read earlier. The law brings wrath. That's the story that you just read, that we just read in Judges 2 and 3. Ralph Davis puts it like this. I'm always going to quote from him. It is mysterious, but Judges does teach us the tragic tyranny of sin. Sin is not simply an action you do or fail to do that you can choose to do or not to do. Sin is a power that holds you in its grip. That is precisely what the apostle meant when he averred that all, both Jew and Gentile, both religious man and pagan man, are under sin, Romans 3.9, which means under the power of sin. So the test reveals that the inclination of our hearts towards sin, as that is highlighted and illumined by the law of God, cannot be reversed by us or by any human savior. We are, in fact, in a death spiral. In a flat spin with no way to get out of the situation. And round and round we go. Last question. Can somebody please stop this? Is there a way for me to get off? I'm getting sick to my stomach. Well, not in the book of Judges. Just so you know, there's no way off of this ride. We're going to ride this thing all the way through, and there will be no way off it. Fortunately, Judges is not, as it turns out, the only book in your Bible. Praise God. The answer then from all of Scripture, will anybody stop this thing, is this. Yes. No. Yes. 
Yes, no, yes. The frustrating point about spinning is that you get nowhere. I can't get off the ground. I'm trapped. Gravity is holding me down. Lots of things are spinning, some above me, some that I'm standing on. And gravity is holding me down to the earth, and I cannot make any progress. In fact, I, a creature of the ground, left my own devices, will end up in a grave, in the ground, and I can make no progress. I will just stay grounded. And as the writer of Hebrews reflects on these things, his joy, his hope, his confidence is that the God-man Savior, not just the man Savior, the God-man Savior, Jesus, got somewhere. He did not spin his wheels. He was the eternal Son of God in heaven. He came down to earth and was born in this land, boom, in the midst of enemies. Because of the enemies, he was driven out of that land. He goes down to Egypt. He returns back to this land, and throughout the course of his life, he gets into Jerusalem. He dies, and he is buried in the ground, but the ground cannot hold him. The ground cannot hold him. His journey is not finished. His destination has not come to an end. He will go to the place of rest. He will ascend and go back to his Father in heaven. He will complete the journey that we cannot complete. He did not sin. He was tempted as we are, but did not sin, and so he entered into the heavenly places, into the holy of holies. In other words, he passed the test. The test given to us, we failed. He came and passed the test. Obedience as a son to the law of God. As the true and faithful Savior then, who stands outside the merry-go-round, he is able to grab you and yank you off. Might be a little bit of a tumble, but he is able to grab you and yank you off of that which will otherwise kill you. Through confession of our faith in him, there's a way off. So the answer is, can you get off? Can somebody make it stop? Yes. And then no. Jesus has arrived at his destination. He sits at the right hand of God as Father. No surprise, we don't. Yet. We don't reside there yet. We are still on a spinning world. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are, as we sing, prone to sin, prone to wander, 
prone to leave the God I love. And so the warfare we must know is the struggle for holiness as we move forward. That is the warfare that Lauren and I need to know. It is the warfare that Tim and Danny and Nate need to know. It is the warfare that Eli and Etta need to know. Every generation has to know the struggle for holiness and the one who can yank you off. Don't be surprised by obstacles. Don't be surprised by sin, by the Lord's discipline in your life, by distress. There are no straight lines while we are on a spinning earth. No straight lines. Last week I was talking about the leeway. We're going to make progress by going like this. This is the goal. Going like this, falling off, going around. Make a little progress, start drifting, fall off, turn around. Course correct over here. No straight lines. Don't be surprised. No, you are not off. At least the part of the merry-go-round that goes around in our lives right now because we still struggle with the old man, with the old woman inside of us. But of course, in that fight, we have need of endurance. We have need of godly sorrow. We're going to fall off. And so repentance and renewal is a part of our lives and part of our journey even now. The final answer, of course, is yes. The not-so-merry-go-round will stop. At the resurrection of the dead, the triune God of peace will sanctify you completely. He will sanctify you completely and perfectly in all of the thoughts right now that seem to you to be insurmountable. In all of the things where your heart leads you astray and your affections take you off into areas that you think are awful, but you keep going over to them. And in all of the things you do, the God of peace himself will sanctify you completely and take you off of that cycle. He will restore perfect shalom. We will not marry the wrong people. We will be married. Having been sanctified to the Spirit, we will be presented to the Son and celebrate the marriage feast of the Lamb of God. Our worship will be pure. We will stop spinning. Dizziness will clear. Sorrow and sighing and groaning will flee. It will fly away from us and we we will be full of the joy of a three-year-old who looks at a merry-go-round says, can we do that? And gets on and has no perception that all they've done is gone around in circles. But just delights. And when the ride stops, looks at their, I'm going to use father for example, looks at their father and says, hey, 
Can we do it again, please? And that's what we'll do. We'll be in this place of only joy. And we'll be so full of it that we'll think, I can't get more full. And we'll look at our Heavenly Father and say, can we do that again? Father, in the meantime, grant us endurance. Help us not to be deceived by the world, by the wiles of the wicked one by the schemes of Satan, by the trinkets that are offered to us instead of the substance of the gospel, the joy of following you. When we fall, when we capitulate once again to sin, revive us again, restore us again, Remember that your wrath has been poured out upon your son and turn your face upon us and take us home. Lead us onward. Jesus, prepare the place for us where we can dwell with you for all eternity. Help us to endure now. Help us to fight well. We pray in your name. Amen.